Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening. The trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John will take us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin explained how he became involved in the Durst case and the pivotal role that the filmmakers of the HBO documentary The Jinx played in that involvement. In this episode, he takes us through his epic two-and-a-half-hour interview with Robert Durst in a New Orleans jail in 2015. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. If there are moments where the audio is unclear, I will try to repeat what was said. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit parts of the trial that John Lewin is talking about, I will periodically identify episodes from Jury Duty that cover sections of the case that Lewin references. You can find our in-depth coverage of John Lewin's New Orleans Jailhouse interview of Robert Durst in Season 2, Episode 14 of this podcast. Lastly, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. So tell me about how the interview in New Orleans went down and how you developed your strategy going into that interview. So, you know, I had my different outlines, etc. you know, from the very start of the day. I delegate certain tasks, but I listen to every statement first. Then I have a law clerk or maybe one of the other DAs actually, you know, put it in the outline, and then I review it. So I had a lot of information on Bob and on the case. I didn't find out that I was going to be interviewing him or had a chance to interview him until about 12 hours, 14 hours before the interview was going to take place. So he got arrested. I had made the request in advance, and there had been some dissension on this among the upper administration that I wanted to interview Bob if he got arrested. That was my plan. Now, historically... You know, there are issues of DAs doing interviews. I do them in all my Honestly, I'm not going to have anybody telling me you can't interview a suspect when it's legal. If I'm on a case, I'm going to make every call regarding what happens with respect to evidence planning on the case. My chain of command determines whether a case gets filed. They determine in the end what any deal is going to be. Uh, and, if, and if I don't agree with the deal, then I'm not going to take the plea. Or I'll take it saying this is not, you know, I've been instructed to do X, Y, Z. So they ended up agreeing that I could go interview him. So I took off, and I had very few hours to kind of plan out what I wanted to do. I knew 
that it was very likely Bob would talk to me. And I knew that the best thing that I had was that even at that point, I probably knew more about Bob than anybody else in the world except for Bob. By the time of trial, I knew more than anybody in the world about Bob because Bob had told so many lies and did not apparently go through the discovery very carefully that he didn't remember what lies he told. So I actually knew more about Bob than Bob did because Bob wasn't aware of all the prior things he said. So I get on a plane and I work out my interview. And my strategy is, number one, let's get Bob to admit to things that he's already admitted to that are helpful. That means you want to get him to talk about the domestic violence in the relationship with Kathy. You want to get him to admit where he was at the time Susan was killed. You want to get him to admit what the situation was with Morris. And so how do I get him to talk to me? Well, I knew that Bob's very curious, and that if I met him, it was very likely that Bob would sit down with me, and that if I could show that I knew a lot about Bob, that's his favorite topic, he would want to talk to me. Because Bob Durst's favorite topic in the world is Bob Durst. So we get to the jail, I change my clothes, and Bob comes in there, and my goal whenever I interview somebody is to be myself, very casual. When I do my interviews, you wouldn't know I'm a, I'm a prosecutor. I talk to them the same way I talk to you. I, you know, I make the same jokes. You know, I'm very, I mean, I'm not putting on anything. That's who I am. I also was fascinated with Bob, legitimately. I find Bob the most interesting defendant I've ever prosecuted in 30 years. Not even close. And I don't mind Bob knowing that. So we sit down and, you know, get Bob coffee, make sure he's comfortable. And he quickly agrees to talk to us. So I knew that one of the first things that I wanted to do was to get on Bob's good side. And I knew how much Bob hated Douglas. And I knew how much Bob loved to talk about great things he said. So I started off very early by telling the story from Bob's deposition and litigation between he and Douglas. Douglas's lawyer asked Bob, isn't it true that, you know, your brother Douglas was so afraid of you that he hired a bodyguard? And uh, they asked him, do you know why he did that? And Bob's response was, because he's a pussy. And I knew Bob's got a very dry sense of humor, and I knew that if I pointed that out, Bob would like it because I am, to some degree, insulting Douglas, even though I don't really believe that, but it's the way in. So I sit down with Bob, and I realize that, you know, he's going to talk to me. And then I realize that, true to form, what Bob does is, sometimes instead of lying, what Bob will do is Bob will, instead of saying, hey, I didn't kill Susie, he'll say, I don't want to talk about that. That's an area I don't want to go into. And I realize that that's going to be very helpful for me. So I start asking those kinds of questions. I get a lot of those answers. I then ask him a question that I ask every defendant who testifies. Whenever a defendant testifies, one of the last things that their lawyers will always ask them is they'll say, uh, now, Fred, uh, did you love your wife? Oh, yes, I loved her. Would you ever hurt your wife? Oh, never. Fred, did you kill your wife? Oh, never. No further questions. That's how a lot of defense attorneys end their examination. In my opinion, it's a very stupid, ineffective thing to do because I will get up, and the first thing I will say is, hey, listen, Fred, you just testified that you loved your wife and you didn't kill her, right? Yeah. Let me ask you something. If you had killed her, would you tell us? It's a great question because there is no good answer. If they say, yes, I would tell you, the jury believes they're liars, because of course they wouldn't. And if they say, no, I wouldn't tell you, then what they're saying is, is that in essence, 
I would lie, so everything I just said on this case is really a big lie. So that was the plan. That's what I did. Has anybody ever answered that question, if I had killed my wife, I wouldn't be testifying right now? Well, they haven't answered it like that, but I've had a few people say, yes, I would tell you. Okay, And that's very helpful to me because in the end, it's not believable. Right. It's especially not believable when I can show with almost all these guys that they've lied about something else. So what I think kind of what, what defense attorneys don't understand is that they operate at level one. Well, I'm going to get my guy to say, I didn't kill her. And I'm going to do it in a most way. And jury's going to go, wow, he sounds so believable. He sounds so sincere. But it's a very stupid question because right. the prosecutor is, is on the ball. You can diminish that. What if somebody answered the question the way that I just suggested they answer it, which is, if I had killed my wife, I wouldn't be sitting here testifying. I would have exercised my right against self-incrimination. So what you're saying is that because you're testifying right now, that is evidence that you didn't kill her? Is that what your position is? Well, yes, because why would I do that? Well, why would you do that? Because maybe you're hoping, Mr. Sunday, that by getting up here and denying something that you did, that you're going to be able to bamboozle this jury. So there is no good answer. My strength as a trial lawyer is I tend to think very quickly. I have not had a defendant or a defense lawyer that I've encountered in my career that was able to kind of crap me in that way. What will generally happen is if I can get you as a defense lawyer or you as a defendant to kind of get out of your comfort zone and to ask certain questions, not knowing what the answer will be, my experience is that I'll win that battle every time. So I'm going to ask that. And of course, he ends up saying, which is more amusing. Most of the time, when you ask them that question, they will say, yes, I will tell you. The best answer you can get is no, because that's basically what they're saying is, is, yeah, I would perjure myself. We all know that's the truth, but it's one thing to argue a defendant is perjuring himself or would perjure himself, right? It's another to say, hey, listen, this guy just told you that he would perjure himself and would lie to protect himself. You can't believe anything he says. That's not me. That's him. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the next part of our conversation, John Lewin continues his explication of the tactics and strategies he employed during his New Orleans interview with Robert Durst. Now, what's really hard to understand and explain is that I asked Bob this question during the New Orleans interview. I asked him, if you killed Kathy, would you tell us? No. If you killed Susan, would you tell us? No. So the defense knew in advance that Bob had already said that. So why are you asking him? If he killed Susan, when you already know he stated um, in a recorded interview to law enforcement, I would lie about it. There was a lot made of that's an unfair question, and you're asking him to speculate. No, it's not an unfair question. I asked it during an interview, which was proper, and you asked him about it while he was on the stand. If you're going to be dumb enough to ask him a question 
which is going to be inconsistent if he answers it the way you want to, you want him to with what he said before, then that's on you. And I'm going to blow you up every time. And that's what I did. What do you think were the key moments in your interview with Bob in 2015? Well, there were a lot. I mean, I would, I would say that, that number one, Bob admitting all the lies that he had told before. Number two, Bob making it very clear he was not in Los Angeles at the time of the murder. I asked, so you're not going to come back later and say, yeah, I found the body. No, I'm not going to come back later and say I found the body. I asked that question on purpose because I wanted to make sure he was locked in so that when he did it, it would, it would look right as if he was manipulating, which is what he was doing. The comments about the domestic violence with Kathy, the timeline questions about Susan, the statements about what happened with Morris, and then finally, when out of nowhere, we're not even talking about it, Bob Durst says, if I tell you what you want to know about Kathy, what happened to Kathy, and I tell you what happened with Susan, what can you do for me? Bob basically, on his own, was proposing to confess to the crime, depending on what I could do for him. And the problem with that is, is that if you're offering to do that, you can only offer to do that if you have information to give. Now, Bob later would try to testify, well, I was going to, no, I didn't have any information, but I would have said anything to get my deal. I would have said whatever it took. The problem was, is, well, Bob, you would have had to have told us, in essence, you never would have been able to get your deal if you didn't tell us that. And you know it. So when you're saying, well, I was saying whatever I had to to get the deal. Well, that doesn't make sense because we would have just had a further conversation. And as soon as you said, well, I can't actually give you that, you don't get a deal. So it was absurd. That was, in my opinion, a confession to the crime. So th there were a number of things. I was extremely happy with the New Orleans interview from the start. I thought it was a key part of the case. And originally, there were some people who didn't view it the same way that I did. You know, what they would say is, well, Bob comes off, there's something kind of charming about Bob. Well, I wasn't ever worried about that. The fact that Bob is interesting and entertaining, and, and this came out with juror number nine. Juror number nine made the comment during jury selection. He called Bob a charming psychopath. And the defense kind of keyed on that. And then he said, in a very juror number nine way, he's somebody I've also become very close to since the trial. And now that I know her, he says, well, kind of more emphasis on the psychopath part. What he really meant and what the defense didn't understand was, he doesn't mean Bob is charming. He means Bob is interesting. He means Bob is a plane crash that you can't take your eye off. But that doesn't mean that he's credible, and it doesn't mean that you like or trust him. Somebody can be entertaining, interesting, and compelling, but it doesn't make them credible, and it doesn't make them likable. And here's what I knew. Bob's treatment of Kathy was so horrendous that there was no way that any juror was going to end up liking Bob Durst. They might find him entertaining. They might think he has a good sense of humor. But I wasn't worried, wow, they really like this guy. They're going to want to acquit him. Wasn't worried from the start, never worried during the trial, no matter how feeble he looked, never a concern. Do you think you were close to getting Bob to actually confess to killing Susan? That's, that's a great question. I've been asked that a lot. So I will tell you, at the time, I thought I was. And the best analogy, I've used this analogy a lot of times, is that in football, what's really important on a defense is not how many yards they give up. It's not what happens between 
their own 20-yard line and your 20 yard It's what happens when they get in the red zone. Does your defense stop them from getting points? And what I realized about Bob was Bob has an incredible red zone defense. So Bob will basically let you, without that much difficulty, he'll let you get down to the five-yard line, and you think you're going to score. But actually, that's just with his defense guard. So at the time, I thought I was very close to a confession. In hindsight, he was never going to confess. Now, what I was likely close to is Bob saying more crazy shit. And one of the things that I knew, I knew during the interview and I knew during trial, I got criticism for this, is I did not want to ask Bob a bunch of leading questions because I knew that if I let Bob talk and Bob would say things on his own, that Bob would make it three times as bad. And there's no way that I could lead him in. The biggest lies Bob told were not, isn't it true, blah, 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 and Bob saying, no, that's not true, and it was. The biggest lies Bob told was when he's just fabricating, you know, events that didn't happen, whether it was, you know, Kathy talking about how she was at the door and, you know, she put her coat, 52% of it was hanging over the left cushion, or whether he's talking about Barry Weiner, or he's talking about his buddy Cunningham, Danny Cunningham, the drug dealer. You know, these are just shit that he made up in intricate detail. And the best thing you can do is get out of the way and let him talk. So, no, in hindsight, I don't think he was close to a confession at all. I definitely thought he was at the time. Once charges are filed, Take me through your long view of the case looking forward. How did you make decisions about building the case? What was your strategy about collecting evidence? And how did you see it playing out in terms of time from 2015 on? Well, so originally my big concern was we filed the case not because we had done everything we needed to do. We filed the case because the alternative was Bob was going to end up in Cuba, and it would be running on a loop of the evidence that was out there. And I decided, my recommendation was, you know what, we need to file with what we have because we can't let them get away. So once we filed, my goal was as much as possible to delay it so I could do the investigation. Remember, most of the best evidence in this case was collected after Bob was arrested. And before we started, before he got exercised in California in November of 2016, that year and a half. And the reason why we were able to collect such good evidence is once Bob was in custody, I didn't need to worry about if I contacted so-and-so, Bob will hear about it and he will take off, you know, for Cuba. Because Bob is in custody, he can't go anywhere. So my original concern was what will keep him in custody longest? And, you know, the defense uh, made things easy for me by some of the mistakes that they made in the Louisiana litigation. So tell me about those two pieces of evidence that you collected between the time that Bob was arrested and you filed charges and his extradition to California. Most of the forfeiture by wrongdoing statements that were made by Zuber. Lewin will explain this in greater depth later in the interview, but his reference to the forfeiture by wrongdoing exception to the hearsay rule is related to Susan Berman's statements to others about her providing an alibi to Robert Durst. Those statements were deemed admissible as evidence against Durst because someone who intentionally or wrongfully makes the declarant, in this case Susan, unavailable to testify, in this case by killing her, forfeits their constitutional right of confrontation the statements to her friends. Those were collected, most of them, after Bob was in custody. In addition, 
a lot of the evidence from Galveston, almost all of it was collected after Bob was in custody. Because my concern was that had we been sniffing around in Galveston, they would have found out about it. I learned later that I was absolutely correct. Had we been sniffing around in Galveston, Dick and Jeff had so many connections down there that they would have known. So we got that evidence. A lot of the evidence relating to Bob's statement that took place after we found out about a lot of these statements that Bob made after. Nick Saban was after. Remember, we couldn't contact Nick Saban before Bob was arrested. There's no way Nick would have called Bob immediately. And it took us, you know, six, eight months, if I remember, to get Nick to tell us what he actually knew. We had that time because Bob was in custody in Louisiana fighting drug charges. So the plan from the start was that this is what I wanted to do. My belief was everything started with Catholic. So what we needed to do was, number one, we needed to explain to the jury who Bob is. And not to show Bob the horrible person, but you needed to show that the reason Bob does the things that he does is because Bob's whole life, Bob has done whatever he wants, whatever he wants to do it, to whoever he wants to do it to, with no consequences. That's how he's lived his life. That's important because some of the things that Bob did in this case were very stupid. And the defense is going to go, well, why would Bob Durst do X, given that he's smart? Well, the reason Bob Durst did X is because Bob Durst doesn't even take the effort to cover up what he does because Bob's whole life has been, I can do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. You have to really understand that about Bob before you start. So the first issue is we need to know everything there is to know about Bob, his whole history, so that we can explain that to a jury. That'll be part one. Part two will be to introduce who is Catholic. And I wanted to make sure that we do not try to hide any of the war. So, for instance, I never hid the fact that Kathy was a recreational drug user, but I was very confident that once the jury heard about the relationship, their response would be, oh, my God, of course he had used drugs. Of course he seen on him. He was a monster. You needed to understand Bob's relationship with Kathy because that went to Bob's motive to kill her. That went to who he was. So all the bullshit in the media, you know, we tried to buddy Bob up with Kathy. No, we didn't. We tried to present to the jury an accurate depiction of who Bob was so they would understand, A, why he was the way that he was, and B, how the way that he was impacted him and the way he handled his relationship with Kathy. Then we had to explain the whole relationship with Kathy and how that went down and I knew that if I did it right, what the jury would believe when Kathy disappeared is that Bob killed her. That's what they're going to say. The next part of it was to destroy the alleged alibi. Lewin said that the next part of it was to, quote, destroy the alleged alibi, end quote. Here he references collecting the evidence that made incredible the idea that Kathy Durst called Dean Cooperman the morning after she was last seen at the home of Gilberta Najami. That meant all the medical students, all the fellow doctors. That meant recontacting the dean. One of the biggest mistakes that Strzok made in the original investigation. By Strzok, Lewin means NYPD detective Michael Strzok, the lead detective who investigated Kathy Durst's disappearance. This is a you know mistake of confidence, not of corruption. Was he decided that well the dean talked to her on February 1st that morning? No. No questions, hey, how did you know it was her? How many times did you talk to her? Did you recognize the voice? You know, what time was she supposed to have started in her clinic? What was she even doing? None of that. That assumption and that mistake was one of the key reasons why they, never, they didn't solve it 40 years ago. 
So I wanted to make sure we addressed that. Then I wanted to address the fact that Susan was the person who helped Bob cover up the crime. Lewin said that he wanted to address the fact that Susan was the person who helped Bob cover up the crime. And we were going to do that through harassing Bob's statements, and most importantly, the statements that Susan made to her friends. And we realized that those statements were admissible for the truth of the matter asserted. So in other words, there's an exception called forfeiture by wrongdoing, where if you kill a witness to, pre- to prevent them from cooperating with law enforcement, their statements come in. And unlike any other hearsay exception, where, where the court has to look at the trustworthiness of the statement, okay, in forfeiture by wrongdoing, they don't look at the trustworthiness. And the reason is pretty simple. The judge, in order to let the evidence in, has to make a foundational determination. Now, the jury has not told this. The jury doesn't know this. But the judge has to find, by a preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not, that, number one, the defendant killed the declarant with Susan. Number two, that he killed the declarant because he was a witness. So once that happens, then the rationale is, is that, the judge has already made a finding by a preponderance that it's more likely than not that Bob Durst killed Susan and that he killed her because she was a witness. And that Bob Durst, you don't then get to also say, oh, by the way, though, what she was going to say was not trustworthy and credible and should be kept out. And the idea is very simple. We can't have a system where a defendant is able to say, yeah, um, the evidence shows I killed the witness, but what the witness was going to say wasn't believable anyway. It's very simple. Once we find that you killed a witness and you killed them to prevent them from revealing information, testifying, et cetera, everything they've said that's relevant comes in regardless of trustworthiness because you, you killed them. In other words, if you believe that their statements weren't trustworthy, then you should have had them come to court and you could have cross-examined them, et cetera. Our system of jurisprudence cannot allow witnesses to be killed before they can testify, and then defendants should be able to argue, yeah, well, even if you think I killed her, um, she wasn't credible anyway. So uh, I knew that we needed to focus there. Once we ended up focusing that Susan was the person who helped Bob with the alibi, then I needed to focus on Bob's motive for killing her. And that was Susan had a big mouth. And that Susan, it turned out, had told Bob, by Bob's own admission, that she was going to talk to the police. Now, what Bob didn't know and what Susan didn't tell him and what undid Bob in this case was that, unbeknownst to Bob, Susan had been telling people what she'd been doing for 20 years and she told eight or nine different people. So I knew I had to do that. I knew that I, we had to cover the reinvestigation by Westchester. And that was important because that was going to be the timeline. That was going to be Bob panicking. We had to cover Bob's response to that investigation, which was he was so terrified he was so sure he was going to get charged with Kathy's murder that he takes off and um, and goes to Galveston living as a new woman. We then needed to cover Morris Black. People said, oh, you only brought up Morris Black because you wanted to show how terrible a person Bob was. Well, that's, that's absurd. You have to look at what is his motive for killing Morris. So the first thing when we started looking at the Morris Black situation, what we realized is that the evidence that was put on in Galveston was not – the evidence that there was a lot more that could have been put on. So we went back, and we were very quickly able to demonstrate that even though the jury acquitted Bob, they acquitted him because they weren't presented with the evidence that we had of the murder. 
So we're going to go back and we're going to present all that evidence. Once you're able to show that the self-defense is bullshit and that Bob killed him, well, what's the motive? Well, the only motive for killing Morris is that Morris knows who Bob is, knows that Bob's in trouble with Westchester, and is the only person that can connect Bob Durst with where Bob is living. So we had to cover that. Now, Bob, during his cross-examination, ended up giving us everything that we wanted. He ended up saying for the first time, even though his lawyers had denied it, that Morris Black knew all about Jimmy Girl. Lewin said that Durst ended up saying for the first time, even though his lawyers had denied it, that Morris Black knew all about Janine Pirro and the reopening of the investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance. And then finally, we wanted to put on the statement from New Orleans, Bob's flight after the drinks, and Bob's statement about what happened. So Bob's flight, the gun, the mask, everything else. These are all references to evidence that emerged out of New Orleans, including Durst's statements in the jailhouse interview and his possession of a gun, a mask, and maps of Cuba. We also wanted to put on the flight to Pennsylvania after Morris because we believe that it demonstrated that Bob was going to kill the police officer, the security guard at the at Wegmans, and Douglas as well. And he connected up in his statement how he was feeling about Douglas at the time when he's talking about wanting to kill him with how he felt about Kathy. So everything connected, and that was our plan. We're going to do this painstaking. We're going to go through one thing at a time. And we took a lot of criticism. Oh, why are you putting on so much evidence about Kathy? Where this is about, this is about Susan. All these so-called experts who are basically, for the most part, morons who've never tried any cases themselves, but, you know, want to go on TV talking about, you know, uh, the work other people are doing when they themselves have no idea. Most of them are criminal defense attorneys who are just trying to build up their name so that people can look them up and go, oh, I'm on uh, whatever news thing. I must be a good lawyer. So we held true to our plan from start to finish, and we always knew that it was working with the jury. I was entertained by, you know, the commentary. I never for a minute was in any great concern at all, not one moment. We knew we had this from day one. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin describes his team's process of interviewing witnesses, deciding which witnesses were critical to their case, and the process by which conditional witness examinations were recorded in the years after charges were filed but before the trial began. Again, you can find our in-depth coverage of John Lewin's New Orleans Jailhouse interview of Robert Durst in Season 2, Episode 14 of this podcast. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. 
Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.